Wait, that's too edgy for a book podcast. <laughs> We're not like, we don't have Bill Burr on. We're not trying to like ruffle some feathers here. Hello and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, episode 55. In this episode, we are talking about In the Garden of Beasts by Eric Larson. I am Ryan and with me is my good buddy, fellow host, Jacob. Yes, hello and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, our little book club, book cult, book something or other, episode 55! I just had to get that in there. Oh, it's the only time we're ever going to get to, I'm ever going to get to just like insert that. Is that Sammy Hagar? It I is. I can't remember. It's Sammy Hagar? All right, good. I didn't want to like betray my 80s musician knowledge <laughs> on the show. That would have been starting off this episode on the wrong foot, but yes, hello and welcome. This is... uh episode 55 it still is it still is baffling to me you know like obviously you know last time was episode 54 this episode 55 that's how it works you know we progressively add one more number to the end but still just blows my mind occasionally i'll go back to our little you know like soundcloud page and look through and i'm like damn man we've done like we've done we've done like 50 51 real episodes we've got some filler episodes in there but you know 55 total but Still crazy, still mind blowing to me. How are you doing today, sir? It's been uh, a sec. I'm uh, I'm doing good. It's it's uh, it's been a weird weird month. It's hot in Dallas, which I I always always hate this time of year. I keep counting down to the days in which uh, the average temperature starts dropping, which is usually about the 17th of August. Uh, if you're keeping track. Oh and, wow! So yeah. you 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 actually pulled the data. Yeah, no, no, no. I I I have. I have a reoccurring calendar thing uh, every year, so that I know when I can somewhat expect the temperatures start to start to dip. I just everybody likes summer. I think I don't know why, uh, but summer in Texas it sucks. It really, unless you have a pool or you live on a lake or some crap like that, it sucks. Period. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree. I got my first. Uh, so I recently moved into a new place, and I got my first electricity like full-on months worth of electricity bill for our place and it was very surprising to me but not surprising when i realized that we're running you know our ac non-stop because of how miserably hot it is but yep yep oh my goodness i was not prepared for that no such is life and you know having a pregnant having a pregnant girlfriend means it's like well and i can't just be like suck it up babe it's gonna be hot so yeah, no that that wouldn't fly at all. She gets she gets thermostat carte blanche. <laughs> you just get her some ice packs, uh, maybe a kiddie pool in the living room. Hey, we got a kiddie pool, man. Kiddie go. pools are in short supply right now. It's tough to what? get a hold of a kiddie pool. Everybody at home, man, they're trying to keep their kids busy. Yeah, kiddie pools. I guess that makes so. sense. If I still had a house, I would get a big kiddie pool for myself if I could. Before we get way too off topic here, yes, episode fifty five. <laughs> Uh, it's going to be a relatively traditional episode. I, I think this is going to be interesting because a, a lot of what we see with our knowledge, I guess, tangentially of World War II, you know, it starts in 1939, right? 39 through 45. Yeah. So everyone kind of gets a beat on that. But this is interesting because we get a little bit this insight and you get to you get to use your big your big Nazi brain, as I said at last yeah. episode, you know, <laughs> which is it sounds terrible. And I yeah. don't mean it in that regard, just that. You know, your your own pet project of sorts outside right. of this in, in research. But pretty standard episode. We'll tell you a little bit about Eric Locks, Eric Larson. She's the the author returning back to the podcast. I'll give you a brief summary and then we're just going to get into it. 
again, we got questions, you know, pulling in some external information here, I think is going to be a big part of this one. And then, of course, we'll get into our patented three tiers, four if we're getting rid of it, five. There's not a five. It's just three tiers or possibly four. And then, of course, we'll tell you what we got coming up on a future episode. So, yeah. So if you haven't read the book, you should uh, read the book. Otherwise, this discussion is not going to make a whole lot of sense to you. Well, that's what we normally say. I think actually you could probably get away with just listening to the podcast on this one because it's this is unique in that regard. Yeah, yeah I mean we're, we're we're talking about historical information here. Although sure. it is worth the read, it offers a different perspective than you would get in the history books. So you should just go read it and then 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 listen to the podcast. Uh, but let's let's get into to Eric Larson a little bit. Uh, we let's. just let we just talked to him or just talked about him a couple of episodes ago. Uh, He's the author of eight books, six of which have become New York Times bestsellers, including his latest book that just came out in 2020 called The Splendid and the Vile. Uh, It's a book that covers the Churchill family during Churchill's first year as as prime minister, which was during the the London Blitz. Um, So Churchill, uh, he's a complicated person, especially when you get into like, you know, British imperialism and that sort of thing. But... Um, anybody who, who really studies Churchill and, and I think everybody can kind of agree that his leadership that first year, especially during the Blitz, um, was really his, his finest time in, in office. So, um, I haven't read the book. I would absolutely pick it up and, and take a look at it, but, um, I just don't have the time right now. So, uh, among those other bestsellers, uh, were, uh, Dead Wake, uh, which is also on my reading list. Uh, Devil in the White City, of course, and then uh, In the Garden of Beasts. Which- I'm starting to think you just have like a love affair with Eric Larson, maybe as a writer or subject matter, or maybe it's just he's he's kind of got his thumb on the pulse of what Ryan wants to read about. I have great admiration for him. We can talk about that uh, a little bit more on, later in the episode. Um, but Larson is is really known for this sort of narrative nonfiction uh, realm that we've seen in the, in the last two books. Uh, he studied at the University of Pennsylvania uh, in Russian history, language, and culture, uh, which is quite the uh, quite the undergrad. And then he got a uh, master's in journalism from Columbia. And he's taught a bunch of different places. He's done a bunch of different talks and and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, yeah. Um, do you have a summary prepared for this book? Very, very brief, dirty summary. Okay. So. One word or less. Oh, one word or less? Nazis. <laughs> All right. Uh, I mean, that's many, a layup, right? As many words as you need. Well, like, uh, you know, we'll, we'll do like, what, 30, 40 words, something like that. So. Sure. Yeah, the that Garden works. of Beasts. It's, we're basically following William Dodd, who's our American ambassador to Germany, as he sort of witnesses firsthand over the course of a year and beyond, but we mostly get 1933, uh, sort of this rise, the simmering underbelly, undercurrent of political and, you know, just overall tension amongst Germany as the Nazi party kind of vies for more control uh, throughout the, the society and the international community at large. Very well done. Good enough. Good enough. Is it good enough for you, Ryan? All yeah. right, Mister. Right. I'm gonna. I. I promise. I promise. Uh, I'm putting my hand up. You can't see it because we're we're yeah mobile. But you can take my word for it. I promise. I will not say that you have a Nazi brain more than three times this episode. I'm gonna try to temper right. it. Your big Nazi brain. All right. Well. You've said it twice already. <laughs> well, shit. Okay, so one more time. <laughs> yeah. For those following at home, of course, I'm not calling my my uh, co-host 
uh, a Nazi because he is probably one of the most antithetical uh, people I know to that. But he is a man who prides himself on his research of the subject. I will say that that is that is a unique perspective. I think that you bring to this episode that I don't think you've brought to any of our previous ones. The amount of of uh, tertiary knowledge you have. So I'm putting a lot of pressure no. on you to bring. Yeah, it out. I'm, no, I'm, you're going to carry the load this episode. I'm just going to be like spitballing yeah, from the gallery. Just you know, sit and back you're, and listen. You're, you're on stage, buddy. It's a one man show now. So, you know what? You know, what's funny. You, you, you say that. Um, but so when I finished this book a couple of days ago, um, and then I, I, what I try to do is I, I finish a book a few days before we do the episode. So it's still fresh, right. but I try to give myself a day to really just sort of digest and kind of think through, you know, what was important to me about this? What are the things that I really want to hit on? And then inevitably we cover like, you know, a quarter of, of what I actually want to talk about. But one of the things that I was doing when, uh, when I was preparing is I was reading some of Larson's, um, like his epilogue in here. And then he has some notes about how he did research. And uh, then I read some interviews where he was kind of talking about those things. And so Larson like does all of his research um, himself. He doesn't ferret it out to, to other people, which actually surprised me, especially somebody like of his of his stature. I would assume that he had people kind of bringing him information, uh, you know, but he's going to like the Library of Congress and he is reading uh, firsthand accounts of, of things himself and really trying to get an idea of, you know, what's going on. He's traveling, you know, to Berlin, to London uh, to to really be in those places as as he's writing as well, um, and so last night I was thinking about all this as I was trying to fall asleep at like eleven o'clock, and for two hours I just laid in bed stewing about how inadequate I feel <laughs> preparing like my historical background for for my book and trying to supplant myself in sort of the the same type of era and the same society as as i just i just realized that i'm not going to be able to do what larson does and i was having a huge moment of self-doubt so it's uh it's kind of funny that uh we're doing this episode like on the heels of of that because i have done a lot of research and i have read uh dozens of books over the last four years and this has been a subject matter that i've kind of lived and breathed if you will um, for, for a long time. So, you know, I was excited to read this book, but then, uh, Larson very much intimidates me, uh, in the way that he, he executes things as, as a writer. And I, I admire him a lot for that. Um, well, to, to your credit though, a lot of what your research centers around is, is more personal in nature, you know, with your grandmother and kind of true. her yep. actual, you know, lived through events throughout this era. So I can understand the need less so in your instance to, to kind of you're you're not following some sort of figure right that you're trying to understand you know everything in the background and their motivations at, at the mm -hmm. core of it it centers around somebody who you very much can garner firsthand sort of information from and and through that sort of pull that out into sort of a bigger a bigger narrative so i get that i get yeah. that don't 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 be so down on yourself buddy Do not. no it's just it's it's one of those things like as as a writer and i'm sure if, if i sat down with larson and talked to him too i mean i'm sure he would be full of self-doubt and you know things that he wish that he could bring in or you know do differently or whatever i mean that's just that's just part of being a writer uh is is dealing with with some of those emotions but um 
but yeah, the the research that I've been doing on on my book is is a little bit different, and it, it's one of the things that I think really spoke to me about this book. So mine is is really focused on kind of the the home front for the sort of average German citizen, especially women uh, in that era, sure. because you know my great grandfather was away for a uh, majority of the war um, and even part of the early occupation. And it was really just my grandmother, her brother and uh, their mom that were, you know, having to, to figure out the the day-to-day stuff and go through these various experiences. And, you know, I think that one of the things that we get a lot of in world war II literature um, is a lot of the war stuff, right? You go to school, you, you learn a lot about, the the big things uh you know the crystal knock the um the night of long knives right um you get these these big things you get the military movement um you get the holocaust of course um but what you don't get is the run-up to all that and that's where like my fascination lies and the reason that i was attracted to this book um because there is that long period from essentially what 1924 um all the way to 1939, but, you know, especially 33 to 39, where um, you get sort of the rising action of the Nazi party. And that's that's six years of, of stuff happening before, you know, quote unquote, like history happens and the war really, really gets started. So I, I wondered uh, if you found the same sort of interest in this time period that's kind of outside the normal confines of of the war as, as we think about it. And, you know, what what did you feel about, you know, reading kind of the run up to that? So, yeah, I in the same vein, I think, you know, with how World War Two is kind of at least the American, you know, understanding of it. You know, we have a very American centric idea of it. So a lot of it stems solely from like when things became kind of inconvenient for us or whenever the U.S. directly got involved or even sort of the actual just militaristic movements, you know, starting in 1939 or even a little bit before, you know, going into all of this, that you don't really get hung up too much on uh, the finer details of that sort of slow accumulation of power for the Nazis and how that sort of power perverted into what led to these events, right? You know, it's mm-hmm. that's less concerning to us. It's more so it's like Hitler bad, German people mad, so they let Hitler do his thing, and then all of a sudden we're in war, which isn't really, you know completely in line with with reality um although there were people complicit you know that's that's the that's kind of the the weird background thing but that aside yeah it was it was an interesting thing to see kind of the um to see this sort of build up through a a distinctly kind of like political outsider type of view right we're not seeing it from someone who's you know involved within this you know within the party like we see a lot of sort of dissenting ideas throughout the book from people that are more intimately involved but we're always still kind of in that sort of like american third you know top down kind of view of it which i think this this type of story is would is is probably uniquely more interesting to americans than perhaps germans because i'm sure they have a better understanding historically of all these events that lead up and this i think this was a good um a good sort of like all-encompassing like little little insight into that my only issue i had this with this book is i didn't really find dodd or martha to be all that like compelling of people to be following along throughout this process yeah <laughs> um but the actual the actual stuffs the actual goings on were kind of were they were they were they were very fascinating and i think sort of that 
additional element when one tries to to reflect on arguably the the largest you know event historically in the 20th century the most you know ground breaking you know earth shattering type event geopolitically at least um so yeah to get that sort of background the, the slow simmering buildup the sort of blind spot that people had towards these sorts of things the willful ignorance or the disinterest for the sake of you know political gains or just everything really yeah um you know i i thought it was interesting that that he was able to work in a few things that you know i think are forgotten about a lot when we you know talk about the the history of things right in in the shadow of the holocaust um we we obviously get the the anti-Semitism that was you know part of of germany um very clearly through through our history lessons but what is i think often less um communicated is at least you know here in america is how pervasive that anti-Semitism was, you know, in the rest of Europe and and certainly in America. And there's a few places in here that, you know, Dodd, uh, sorry, well, not Dodd, uh, Larson was able to work that in with, you know, some of uh, Dodd's staff and um, some of the correspondence, which I thought was was really important, um, you know, because, again, we try to we try to say that, like, you know, Germany was was really unique in this in this movement and and they weren't, um, you know, there there were the the pervasive beliefs that, you know, Jews were in positions of, of power and they and they shouldn't have been uh, one of the one of the uh, embassy staff made a comment about uh, how they, uh, you know, were able to to take over certain roles in, you know, America and Palestine and. Uh, all these different things, and then they just got too greedy in in, in Germany, and and uh, Germany's had enough. Uh, something to that effect. That was a gross uh, bastardization of of the actual quote that's in the book. But um, I thought that was that was a really important thing. That was you know a, a small part of that, but kind of I think set the stage for how patient everybody kind of was with the Nazis early on, um, and that that inflammatory language. Um, did, did that surprise you at all to, to see some of those, those elements or, or kind of how slowly everybody didn't react to Hitler's regime? On one hand, yes, it did seem that, you know, from a very just purely logical and analytical standpoint that people were somewhat asleep at the wheel because it was very, you know, I, and again, we, you know, we live in an age of information now that these type of things if they happen or so even in, you know, the smallest, whatever minor thing is visible to countless people around the world. Whereas, you know, in that time, I'm sure things were more obfuscated. You, you know, we get a lot into the, uh, the propaganda arm of the Nazi party within this and mm -hmm. just how they're kind of like manipulating that information getting out. But even still, uh, you know, your leaders, your political leaders that are informed on that. Yeah. You know, it is, it is interesting the level of inaction that you had kind of allowing this to take place. But on the other hand, you know, with the background of World War One still looming, you know, still yep. Yep. a decade plus, you know, only a decade or so plus removed from this conflict, uncomprehensible, you know, in scope, in in destruction, in, you know, just widespread death and just loss of life and property and value in this just 
constant ramifications that that the the nations are still suffering like i understand the hesitance to try and you know engage in a in a very you know heavy-handed way towards towards germany or towards other countries because the reality is is it's like this is this was the turning point where you know this we now see conflicts being able to take on this type of toll Mm -hmm. you know internationally that you really hadn't seen on such a great deal up until that point. So I, I get it. On the one hand, it's like, man, we really don't want to do this again. We really do not want to happen. And, you know, Dodd even reflects some in the book of, you know, about Germany's misguidedness within World War One, kind of leading them to, to be in that, the, the situation of needing to completely rebuild their economy, completely, you know, deal with all this debt that they're paying off and all this. But it is, it's, it's, it's odd. You know, it is, it's, it's, it's definitely difficult to see why there was such a high degree of inaction, given that you have really high, you know, with the the people being missing, people being ousted yeah. from, you know, political positions, this accumulation of power, this these sort of like manipulation of law in order to kind of fit whatever it is that they were doing at the time. This like militarization of uh, not just the populace, but of kind of their own you know, the, the over-militarization of their police forces, things like that, that it it is a little bit disappointing, right? That people yeah. just kind of, like, allowed this to happen. Well, and, the, you know, the other part of it, too, was, was obviously the monetary policy, right? Germany sure. owed the war reparations from World War One, and there was always the fear that, you know, those were not going to be repaid, right? And... Right. I mean, just because of the economic situation that happened after the war, um, I mean, I don't know how likely it was that Germany was ever going to get around to that anyway. Um, I mean, the the financial you know penalties were punitive on on Germany, and and there is uh, I I think you can sort of understand some of the position of you know, the, the leaders in that country, um, for viewing the, the reparations and their disposition after world war one as being punitive. And so that's, you know, that was kind of the, the fuel for, you know, getting this, this whole fire burning, um, in part as well, you know, obviously the, the anti-Semitism was, you know, just sort of a a feature of, of all of that. It, It really wasn't the driving factor, um, for your, you know, your average person. I, I've been reading this this book that I haven't quite finished yet um, called Frowlin by um, Allison Owings and uh, Owings, Owings, Owings. Um, and uh, it, it, it's a book of, of interviews with, um, with women that she wrote this book in the 80s uh, and the interviews, I think, spanned, uh, I, I think, the, the 70s and 80s. And there are women from all different walks of life and, and talking about, you know, various subject matters, you know, around Nazism and, and World War Two. And one of the, the things that's really pervasive in that book is, you know, the the opinion that Hitler did a lot of good things. Um, you know, he reduced the um, the unemployment. He, um, you know, sort of reinvigorated um, the sort of nationalist belief and pride in in Germany and even at that point you know 40 years removed um, or almost 40 years removed uh, some of these women still uh, were very supportive of 
you know, his ideas. Or at least sympathetic. And, and those thing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really um, it's really fascinating how he was able to to play on some of these, you know, deep seated things to you know to to come to power. And again, I think Larson does a really good job of of sprinkling in a lot of this stuff without ever you know sort of reaching that meta level of you know sort of uh, historian saying okay you know these are the things that you know like the the monetary policy for instance. Um, this is the thing that's preventing the U.S. from taking any action, from you know condemning anything that the Nazi Party is doing in thirty-three and thirty-four. Right. The, I I do appreciate the with this book and even going back to Devil in the the White City is you know Larson approaches these like historical topics obviously with kind of like personal people in mind. You know we get the the, the dual sided narrative structure, but it's very much um, there's no sort of like interpretive nature in in the book. Right. There's it, the book isn't trying to say well. As a as a historical writer, this is the reason why this led to this and this this led to this. I think the that is a refreshing in a sense of uh, of in in the historical context when you do it through the lens of a narrative, right? When you're following an individual, then kind of your subject matter can just sort of be all right. We're experiencing this less about trying to identify key elements and oh well because FDR didn't do this and had his policy have been different than this would have changed and this was the turning point you know in a lot of historical writing around world war ii you get that you know you get a lot of maybe what ifs or you get a lot of well you know if hitler didn't do this or hitler didn't do that then you know the allies would have he would have been able to you know accumulate more power that that to me is a little bit i don't know it, it it's a put off in a lot of other books that i've read on the subject matter historically a lot of people like to they're very opinionated about World sure. War II, and I understand it. It's a very impactful cultural, political, you know, every spectrum of human existence within the Western world was impacted by this for decades, you know, still going on beyond that with ideological standpoint. You know, we're still dealing with ramifications of that today. And so I think it's a very hot button issue that people like to sort of interpret their own you know ideas behind and i i do applaud larson as being a very concise and you know it's a really good writer while not sort of like infiltrating any bias at least from my yeah. from my understanding not any bias into the situation right it's just it i think it lends to a more appropriate blending of the 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 two genres which we saw you know we saw yep. the devil in the white castle i you know it's it's i think it's really fascinating way to approach history history i said that very weird history. to approach sort of history um to approach sort of historical events and stories when you can kind of them kind of distill them down into individuals right you're less trying yeah. to get the big yep. scope of things and more just this is an individual i'm seeing it through his eyes and your outside understanding of a lot of these events will help you to be able to look at these things in a different, you know, or at least look at these things with a different perspective. I'm not trying to force you into, you know, believing one thing or another. I'm just simply offering you sort of a path to walk down, which I, I, I really enjoyed. If there was the one, the one thing that I can say, because I was a little bit, I, I think I was metal shelf on devil in the white city too. And I think that was more yeah. so just because the, the HH home stuff kind of got old to me and I didn't really follow that all that much, but yeah. You know, if there's if there's one thing about the way that Larson writes, um, and especially in this book, it's that it's very much I don't know, it's it's sort of 
it, 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 it's, it's sort of aside from any type of, of bias or any type of, you know, fudging. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are, you know, as a, as a writer with a historical narrative, I'm sure you have to sort of fill in gaps at some points because yeah. you're having to kind of make things piece together, but you're doing so as ethically, I suppose. And as, as formulae, you know, formulated, I can't even make words right now, but as formulaic <laughs> as you can to try to create the most, you know, honest representation of this. And yeah, it's just an enjoyable facet of this genre that I really had not been, I guess, privy to before we kind of got into to Larson. This, yeah. this, you know, historical narrative context for storytelling. And I, I think if there's one positive caveat, you know, and I guess it's it's I guess you probably feel the same way while you're just checking off every Eric Larson book. Man, the, the guy can write. And I certainly yeah. enjoy the way with which he approaches these stories. I mean, he's he certainly seems to be a master at at the the narrative nonfiction stuff. And to your point, it is it is really hard to kind of fill in those gaps. Right. Because th these aren't books that are just, you know, straight quotations from diaries and all that kind of stuff. He's reading things and he's looking at the historical context and. He's probably reading newspapers. He's obviously traveling to these places um, and he's consolidating as he's writing all of these these disparate data sources into a, a narrative form. And it really, I think, more than almost any other kind of writing, especially fiction, um, it's so restricting in the way that you have to do it that to do it well really does take some amount of mastery and, and I really have the greatest admiration for, for the way that he does that. Now you had said earlier um, that you don't like the, the characters of, um, of the Dodds or specifically uh, the ambassador and, and Martha. So what, what was it about those two that you like didn't, didn't foot with you? Um, well, I mean, I, part of it was, the fact that, yeah, we kind of had this dual narrative structure, right? That we were hopping back between sort of the professor's experiences. And then we get kind of Martha as she's sort of traversing the sort of socialite, you know, integrating herself within this kind of uh, political powerhouse type people within there. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. It was just, I, it was never something that I particularly, I just, I don't think I particularly ever... I don't think I particularly ever like anything that they did really resonated with me. Like I felt like Dodd, you know, I, I understand he was kind of playing the game that he had to, but he just felt like kind of a do nothing to me. And it, it was, yeah. it was frustrating to read that. Like I understand, you know, this isn't uh, a work of fiction where you're like, Oh, I have to craft this character, you know, that, that has all these sorts of things, you know, you're, you're following a person and you know, right, you're, right. you're, you're sort of outlining what it is they did, but Dodd to me, I guess I guess it's unfair to call him a character, but Dodd as a person throughout this book just uh, just very seemingly ineffective and just frustrating and you know slow to to action. It was it was less so I guess that I didn't like the character, more so that it was just it was frustrating as someone I guess with the hindsight of knowing where this all ends up. Yeah, to see yeah. someone so uh, you know and. And I, you know, on the other hand, I understand kind of the, 
the pressures at stake and kind of the the situation that he's in, you know, we'd all like to say it's like, oh, I just walk right up and punch Hitler in <laughs> <Right>. the dick, <laughs> and I'd be right on a plane back, and FDR and I would come over there and we'd fuck that guy, right? Like, I'm sure it's really easy to say that, and I understand yeah. the maneuvering's possible, but it's just the the passiveness with which it's done is just it's, yeah. it's frustrating and honestly that might be the point you know to the reader to be frustrated by seemingly this like you know this character that is aware of how things are seemingly has this has kind of the pieces of the puzzle here to go like things are getting bad this is gonna be bad yep and just you know the 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 hamstringing by the state department the hamstringing by just the the nature of where he was and the situation. Like I, I get that. It was still frustrating as a reader. So maybe, you know, that's the point. Maybe, maybe it went over my head. Maybe the whole point was, yeah, you should be frustrated because Dodd is such an ineffective and seemingly, you know, ineffectual character. And we're, we're sort of just stuck like on this wave as it's growing bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's the reality of these people's lives, you know, in these situations. Like I get that. Yeah. Um, Martha was, was interesting in a sense like the you know i I, the you know potential to set her up with hitler and like kind of her (laughs) insight with these with these powerful figures within both you know the 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 wings of the nazi party as well as kind of the soviet uh espionage angle but i don't know it was just it, it never really truly resonated with me in a very effective way okay so you know i i think i think dodd his his decision to write him in a in a very specific way was really intentional and i think the the impression that you got from his character as he was he was conveyed in this book is the kind of counterpart that his um his coworkers saw right and i think that that that's one of the the genius things about what larson did in this book is that inevitably Dodd wrote about other things. You know, he did have interesting relationships, you know, in government and, you know, was at times um, somewhat of an interesting character. But it was always absent from the book about really his his personal life, Um, you know, especially his relationship with his wife. Uh, Bill was almost uh, non-existent, Uh, you know, and and so he left out a lot of um, I think some of the humanizing things for Dodd intentionally so that we would come away with exactly the impression that that you described that he was um ineffective that he understood but he didn't maybe possess the the prowess to do anything about it and he was frustrating to um the people around him and and I think by omitting some of those uh, those other details and really focusing in on some of the things that he did talk about you know, the, the efficiency, um, in like writing and his obsession with, you know, his side project, um, the old South or whatever. Mm. Um, I think all of that was done intentionally so that that would happen. Um, and I, again, I just think Larson is, is brilliant for doing that. And if it was an accident, which absolutely does happen, uh, as a writer sometimes, um, then, you know, that's even more of a happy circumstance, but I, I disagree. I think, I think Martha, was a fascinating uh character to me um i think you know this is this is kind of the age where you know women's rights and just women as you know sort of social figures are really kind of coming into their own right 
Um, <laughs> and, you know, I think Martha and the things that he chose to convey about her, especially um, her promiscuity and, and uh, her penchant for, um, you know, really judging men and uh, and using pitting them, uh, you know, against each other. I thought was just a really fascinating sort of character study um, for somebody in that era, um, you know, at, at her age. And I just, I thought, you know, she was, you know, impressionable, but she was intelligent. Um, you know, she was, she was driven, obviously. Uh, and I love that she called somebody a slimy mouthed bitch. That was probably my favorite part of this whole book. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I, I want to wield that insult uh, against somebody at the earliest opportunity that I have it. I mean, I feel, yeah, I, I, I feel you on that regard, but it's, I don't know. It's just tough because I feel like so, and, and, and I guess part of it too is, you know, when you look at this subject, I'm sure there's just an oversaturation of character studies, right? With, when you talk about the, the people involved in this, you know, you could, there, I'm sure there's plenty of character studies on Goring and, you know, Goebbels and, and fucking Hitler and Hindenburg and all, all, you know, all these people involved that to me seemed like, you know, Oh, I, you know, it'd be interesting to get those, those kind of nuggets. But at the end of the day, that's not what this book was trying to accomplish. And I think it's unfair, I guess, for me to try to, to expect that level of, you know, narrative omniscience, right? To just shift yeah, to, sure. you know, we, we get two perspectives, very tight, you know, compact. You don't try to reach beyond what this person's scope is. And and luckily we're attached to, to two people that have a relatively high scope of, you know, visibility as to what's going on, you know, compared to any other type of, uh, you know, uninformed individual in this. But I thought that I the... go ahead. No, you're sorry. Go ahead. I was just rambling. I was just, I was just gonna say, I, I thought that the, um, that that like social hierarchy was really fascinating too. The fact that the you know ambassador and his cohorts and certainly his daughter um, commingled with with Nazis so much because you know I think as as an American you just have this impression you know post war that the Nazis were the enemy, right? And sure. that was not the case, right? You had the sort of appeasement era, um, you know, with with the British, and you know, obviously, you had all of this this run up where we're trying to figure out, you know, how to how to be diplomatic about this regime change in in Germany, and I found it extraordinarily fascinating to see, um, you know, some of the some of the character studies of you know Goring, uh, especially is is just such a bizarre human being um and uh even deals and and some of these people that you know you you know something about their their history but again usually that's supplanted in the military aspects of world war ii and the holocaust you don't really necessarily get a view of those people um outside of these very brief uh well not very brief but sort of flashes of atrocity in the, in the run up to to the war, and then kind of the larger projects that they were a part of um, therein, and so I w it was a little bit like unsettling to me to think about like you know the American ambassador, uh, you know, spending time with with these guys or even having a sit down with with Hitler to uh, to talk through things. Um, did did you ever find those 
situations like uncomfortable. I mean, obviously Dodd was ill-equipped, which made it uncomfortable in its in its own way. But just the fact that at some point we sat down and looked these people square in the eye and we knew what they were about. Yeah, I mean, again, so much of this comes from a perspective years later, hindsight, you know, looking yeah. at the looking at the politics and the the moves and just sort of the evolution of the Nazi party over the course of, you know, the war and sort of the the after effects after. Yeah, it's 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 interesting to kind of as as someone with all of that information with you know, knowledge of the, all the atrocities of, of all the the problems, you know, to go back to right before that happened where you're still kind of like engaging with this group politically, you know, you're still engaging with them sort of cordially, you know, you're having parties and yeah, everyone's coming to for dinner parties and, you know, conversations. Meanwhile, you know, there's still this stirring undercurrent of, well, they're, you know, trying to eliminate dissidents and they're, you know, pulling this, uh, you know, ethnic sort of uh, not not quite yet ethnic cleansing, but it's bordering on this sort of uh, depriving people of rights. You know, you're you have this mass eugenics and sterilization and euthanizing, you know, programs. And, you know, meanwhile, you know, we're just, you know, we're writing letters to them. We're we're working with them to try and figure out what best way to go about this. It is it's it just kind of. This is, I think, the most just potent example throughout, you know, historic, like history. I said it again, history. Um, <laughs> one of the most potent examples kind of of, you know, fraternizing with the enemy for the sake of, you know, avoidance. Mm -hmm. But it is. It's just it's looking at like the closest equivalence would be, you know, like ISIS or I guess terrorist groups, you know, a couple years before they fully, you know, got embroiled in all these conflicts in in syria and iraq and all this just you know having our our ambassadors over there just you know dealing with them and working with them it's just it's a weird it's a weird thought right from someone who's yeah. so far removed from it but it, it's it's not you know it's it's that's that's the reality of the situation was that yeah you had to you had to work with nazis to try and figure out you know what was going to be best for everyone even though it's it's not like they were hiding who they were it's not like they were um pretending to be anything that they weren't i mean they were saying right. things that were completely ass backwards for anybody with any sort of observational ability to to understand that their their words and their actions are not sort of cohering but ah, i don't know it's it's when you have some when you have a group that's been so rightfully vilified, demonized, you know, ostracized, condemned to the dredges of history where they fucking belong. And you see, you know, yeah, but, you know, before all that. Right. Yeah, we were hanging out with them. You know, we had ambassadors over there. <laughs> we did all this stuff. And one of the things, you know, that's fascinating to me, even to beyond, uh, you know, not obviously within the scope of this book. But then, you know, you flash forward a few years and we're having the Olympics in Berlin in 36. And right. Just this whole, I don't know, this whole, and and I know that there were, uh, I know that there were protests and, and international issues with that, but just kind of this blasé, you know, all right, well, we, we don't want to go to war, so we're all just going to kind of relax and, and work with them here. That just, 
is mind bad. You know, it's it's baffling to the mind today. It's it's really tough to to comprehend that type of attitude given what yep. we know what happens. Well, and I mean you're starting to see, you know, things come out of China about their their treatment of Muslims and it is sure not it's, dissimilar from, you know, what you're correct. what went on in in Germany at that point. And I mean, boy howdy, are we are we tangled up in uh in Chinese technology and, you know, businesses are reliant on uh, you know, products that are made there and assembled there and and all of that kind of stuff. And I mean, we're not we're not in a in a different situation by any means. Um, you know, it's not like everybody's pulling out their ambassadors or, you know, telling China, you know, to quit it or, you know, anything like that. Um, you know, I, th- I, I think that's, that's a fair comparison. You're, yeah. you're starting to see history repeat there. And, and, and I'm sure that there are a plethora of of other examples, um, you know, even just other human rights violations other than you know, ethnic cleansing, uh, type issues where I don't know that we've really like figured out a, a diplomatic, you know, way to, you know, a- address the, the inequality and oppression of, of people. Um, you know, we, history does repeat itself, you know, and the impetus for, you know, for, for my discussion with my grandmother that kicked off, you know, this, this research for this book was, her fear that the things that she heard um, in the the late 30s and then throughout the war, uh, those things are happening in Republican politics today. And I think the, the fascinating thing about this book is that there is so much that, that happens um, in, you know, the, this one year, basically, that we're, that we're in Berlin in this book. But there's still, again, six years between the the goings on until Hitler invades Poland and it is it is a slow consolidation of power it is not an uh, a switch that goes off um you know that just suddenly you know Hitler is is chancellor and and Fuhrer and uh has total control of all these things you see that the dominoes sort of start to fall and I think it's really important, just as it was important for, you know, the, the average Germans of that era to, you know, to do something about what was happening to their country. And, and they had obviously other motivations for not doing that, whether that's fear or agreement um, or just complete uh, ambivalence to, to what was going on. Um, history tells us that, you know, that we have to be, you know, more involved when we start to see those, those dominoes start to fall. And I know that I've, I've made that comparison to the, you know, the Nazi regime and, and Republican politics in, in America today. Um, but it, it's an apt one in, in, in a lot of regards. And, you know, it doesn't mean that that's, that's where, you know, they're heading. It doesn't mean that that's where, uh, Republicans even want to head. Right. Cause I, I think that, Hitler's uh, ideas were cemented and and established well before, you know, he was able to consolidate power and really execute those things. And I don't think that there's that sort of organized thing, but it's not within, you know, or outside the bounds of reason that somebody could step up into, you know, a position like that and, and start to to try to do that. I mean, shit, Trump this week said that he wasn't sure if he was going to leave the White House uh, if, you know, Biden got elected. I mean, that's just that's not those aren't the kind of things 
that happen in this country, right? We we have a process whereby somebody's elected and that person, you know, steps out of or the the incumbent president steps out of office and, you know, relinquishes power to the incoming president. That's just, you know, what happens. Those kinds of things being said or, or frankly even thought in American politics is a point where, you know, our our hair on the back of our neck should start to bristle. And, you know, those are the things, you know, that my that my grandmother heard uh, here in America that made her think of Nazi Germany. That that in and of itself should also be terrifying. Um, you know, so so I don't know, you know, what you what you do. Right. Um, you know, I don't I don't know how you handle, you know, the, the situation in China diplomatically, you know, with with other countries. Um, but it does take more decisive action, I think, than what we saw Dodd, uh, you know, do in the 1930s and uh, and certainly more decisive action than, you know, what led up to, you know, World War Two in the six years after 1933. Um, right. That's a lot to unpack. Um, it is. It is a lot. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. I, I mean, I, I, I get that. We'd be remiss without any any type of. Anytime, I guess there's a book or a, or something that has a, a great deal of historical content or a context that you know. I mean, we've spent the last two episodes basically taking all this sort of historical or fictional context and trying to sort of figure out how it fits with our current lives, our current situations, and mm-hmm. the responsibilities I suppose we have as as concerned individuals and invested individuals in our lives, and, and kind of how we address those sorts of things and. You know, I'd be remiss in saying and not saying that sort of the ideas, not necessarily specifically the policies that that the the Nazis withheld, but the ideas that allowed them to enforce those policies, the the ideas of control, the ideas of manipulation of information and dissemination to people, the ideas of, you know, vilifying um, groups, whether it's racial groups, ethnic groups, whether it's political groups, whatever, those ideas are very present and they yep. seemingly are always omnipresent within sort of the scope of political discourse, which is unfortunate to say the least. I mean, yeah. I, I think it's definitely, you know, I I know you use kind of the, the, the Trump quote as an example. Honestly, that guy, I've just, you know, I, I, man. Donald Trump is a whole other fucking can of worms, but <laughs> I know, aside I know. As, aside from stuff like that, just the yeah the the willful I guess sort of ignorance that people possess when it comes to this level of manipulation in ideas and the the complicitness that people have in force being used to compel others to adhere to those type of ideas, or at least the idea that people are fine with with force being used as a as a weapon against their opponents, you know, without ever comprehending that it's like, well, the thing about force being used against your opponents is that eventually force will be, you know, used against everyone if the end goal is to accumulate power. And I think that that's something that's lost in a lot of people because they see yeah. so much need for the win, whether it's politically, whether it's, you know, uh, ideologically, like I have to win this argument or I have to do this and you tend to ignore this kind of like bubbling undercurrent of sort of I I, I guess 
ideological weaponization, right? The yeah, weaponization yeah. of ideas as a means of um, mobilizing a group of people almost fanatically into action, right? At the at the core of it, you know, the Nazis are only as strong as their adherents, right? Right. You know, right. Hit, Hitler as a whole is not powerful. He's powerful because he's convinced a group of people to mobilize behind sort of the idea that he's that he's prescribing right and right yep it's it's you know you're kind of entering a gray area when you say oh well some ideas are acceptable some aren't that's not necessarily what i'm getting on it's i think whenever you are able to create ideas about opponents about the way things should be about all of these things and your response to that is to sort of uh create this fanatical following behind these ideas is when you get problems because then you create sort of populaces of people that mm -hmm. are willing to potentially do horrible things to ensure that their ideological standards or their their ideas for how these sorts of goals should be met you know yeah. at the end of the day and that's it's really hard to ignore that prevalence you know here in america politically and and i think that that idea is apolitical as a whole i think that you know you you've raised you know concerns about sort of policies and things and i think that's a fair i think that's a fair point to bring up as far as you know republicans specifically that you've kind of like targeted i do think there there are ideological there are ideological points or at least ideological um sort of tenets that are held by the the right that I, I don't think are very uh, I don't think are very good. And I yeah. think that a, a fanatical devotion to them for the sake of, you know, towing some sort of uh, like towing some sort of idea or, or whatever. I, I don't think that's good. But yeah, I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm kind of rambling at this point. No, no, but no, no. It's, I, to me, the, the biggest thing is, you know, throughout this whole thing is it's this kind of stuff is. When you look at it, you know, when you see it in China and, and China, you know, I don't have I don't possess the same degree of political understanding of everything that goes on within China. Sure. Obviously, they same. have their yeah. own. A lot of what happens there is in the historical context of, you know, their own sort of regime change and decades of now of sort of the ramifications from that. And, you know, we kind of see the the horrible things being done externally. And it's 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 a little bit alarming that we're so just kind of like ignorant to it or, or maybe not willfully ignorant to it i suppose or just right. kind of complicit in it but it's very easy to see the sort of things that happen you know here in america where you have ideologues sort of convincing people to just fanatically devote themselves to ideas without questioning the the veracity of the arguments they're making without questioning you know whether the the truth that they've been told is indeed the truth and you have mm -hmm. these arms of disinformation that sort of feed that fire and yep. you just create this this environment where i can understand maybe not directly but i can understand you know your grandmother's point of view that a lot of this chaotic build up politically that you have this environmental tension amongst people that at any point in time can just be completely set off into this powder keg of you know, explosive conflict of, of all sorts of, of, of things and, and potentially disastrous consequences. Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, it's, it's really incumbent upon citizens to, to be vigilant and to, to, you know, that's why history is so important, right? Because it, it teaches us something 
not about what's happened, but about um, the human condition, right? People, as you know, societies, they, they evolve in different ways, but there are some basic behaviors that are pervasive across history. And that's why, you know, it's, it's really important to look at some of these really dark aspects of uh, our human history and figure out, you know, how we got there. And again, it's, it's, the, it's the little things punctuated by these big moments, right? You have the climax of this book in the, the Night of, of uh, Long Knives, right? Where, you know, Hitler basically takes out what he thinks is, you know, going to be opposition uh, within his own regime, uh, based on, you know, a total lie. And to that point, you know, his, his propaganda machine and, uh, his other support structure, the SS and, and everybody else, um, was willing to go along with essentially eliminating Rom and, and the, and the entire SA. And, you know, that was, that was kind of one of those, one of those moments where the German citizens were either going to fall in line or they were going to get smart and, and do something about it. And I guess my fear in America is that, you know, we've already we've already reached a point where our polarization is just insane. I mean, you have for the Republican Party a propaganda wing in in Fox News and various other you know news sources that are unquestionably biased that eschew basic things like data and science in favor of, you know, political leanings. To what end, I, I, don't, I don't really know. I haven't figured out or really thought much about, you know, why they do the things that, that they do. But like, you know, the conversations around, you know, coronavirus being a hoax, right? Or uh, masks especially. God damn it. If there was ever a more simple fucking thing in the whole entire world during this whole pandemic, just put a damn mask on your face. Somehow we have politicized that um, across party lines. And you have, you know, Fox News and uh, and Republicans pushing certain narratives. Um, you know, look at Georgia and Florida, the way that their governors refuse um, mask mandates uh, at the state level. I mean, Greg Abbott did the right thing and, and, and for Texas and, and pushed that, what, a week ago or more now. It's been a little bit. It's been a couple. Yeah. Of weeks. So I mean, you 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 have you certainly have shades, right? Like I don't want to I, I don't want to say that um, that every single Republican um, is incapable of, or is is Listen, capable of, I, of operating. I'm not on trying it. to put I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but you 100 percent said every Republican is yeah. a huge piece of shit. <laughs> no, and you but, hate them. but 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 no, that's not true. Uh, yeah, obviously. But obviously. by and large, the the party has has towed this line and buys into. Um, especially what what Trump's administration has been pushing out there, and that should be that. Just forget the the actual act, the ask of wearing masks or anything like that. But that polarization, that politici politicization. God, now I'm stumbling over my words like you. That whole concept should terrify everybody, right? Like if if I were behaving that way. And I thought that coronavirus was a hoax and, and masks were, you know, going to suffocate me and blah, 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 whatever. I would I would hope that I would be able to look at myself and go, this is crazy. Like you have the like top scientists in this country and the world and all these public health experts. You have doctors, everybody saying, yeah, this is the right thing to do. It's not going to be the only thing, 
you know, but it's the right thing to do. And people have been so vehemently against that because of what they've been hearing from their political leaders who are not qualified, you know, to dispense that kind of advice. That whole concept and construct of our, our political, you know, situation should terrify people. Um, and, and hopefully they would wake up to the fact that, you know, we're at a point where we need to start redefining, you know, our politics and the way that we, you know, think about each other and in, in the context of those things so that we don't end up, you know, with a big domino falling um, where somebody does consolidate power. Somebody does refuse to um, to leave the White House. And the, the other part of it is that it, it could swing the other way, too. Right. So if you know, Trump loses the election in a landslide, that's going to polarize everybody, you know, even more. And, and on the left, they're going to they're going to want vengeance for for certain things. And that idea of like retribution and, and all of that, it, it doesn't help anybody. There has to be moderation. And that's those are the things that as citizens in any country we should we should demand. And that's what, you know, German citizens really missed out on. Um and, you know, they allowed their government to play into their biases and to play into, you know, their emotional reaction to the end of World War One and their economic situation that allowed, you know, all these other things to happen. So that's quite the diatribe. <laughs> that's quite the that's quite the departure from. <laughs> I mean, that's it, it's it's, it's hard not to. It's yeah, sure. It's hard not to whenever you get into stuff like this it's it's hard not to to think about our sort of current political social you know climate that exists that's just kind of a fucking minefield out there man for it is everyone to traverse it's just these are not trying to not in any way shape or form trying to liken us you know physically or even remotely to pre-war nazi germany but you know, it's just, it is, it's, there is just a, a climate that exists in this country where it's just every, every word somebody says, every action they take, everything is just a complete and utter minefield of yep. potential, you know, explosive ramifications. And it's just, it's, it's baffling to me. It's baffling to me that, you know, we've had this sort of simmering climate, you know, it's, it's waxed and waned for maybe the last, what, decade, but sure. Uh, it, we've really just reached a point now. And it's just, it's, it's crazy to me that throughout this whole thing that, that, you know, logical cooler heads have not prevailed. And, you know, my fear is that they never will. And we're just going to yep. be permanently entrenched in this ideological, you know, just fervent warfare and you know the the politiscape and sort of society as a whole is just going to be this battlefield wasteland for domination and subjugation of of the others and it's 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 sad because that's just i feel like as a as a person growing up you know here and seeing the best of what this this country has to offer and you know learning about you know the experiences of 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 people of similar and different backgrounds here it's just it's just disappointing, right? Yep. To 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 think that you know this is what we've come to. Yep. This is what we deem is how our society will handle itself, at least going forward. Is that we are permanently entrenched in this ideological warfare where nothing is nothing is too exorbitant a cost in order to assert dominance over 
opposition that you will take every measure possible to ensure that the way that you want things to be regardless of of who they of who it helps regardless of the outcome that that is the be all end all goal yep it's just it's it's utterly disappointing and it's you know it's it's it, that's it that's all i can say about it man it's just it's just disappointing as a human being you know who i think i try to do my best to to live a pretty do no harm type lifestyle you know i i, I try yep. to exist in a conscientious way and it's just utterly disappointing it is but you know the the other thing and and maybe i'll i'll, I'll try to end on a, here's our on, beacon on, of hope on a moment of, of please write inspire us <laughs> uh in Before in we all get out of, my, of here in all of my research that that i've done for for this book and and all of the the social history uh work that that i've done um the the interesting thing to me is that there are so many people that existed, you know, during this period um, that really didn't believe in um, like anti-Semitism or didn't believe in in Hitler's politics, and you know, believed that this this was just going to to kind of burn itself out, and and obviously it it didn't until uh, war ended it. Um, but you know, people you know, in everyday lives and small ways. And I mean, read stories about, you know, the, the blitz in London um, or, you know, the bombings in, in Berlin during the war. I mean, people were still helping each other and people, you know, do care about one another. Um, and, you know, yes, everybody has, you know, some kind of, of bias or something that, you know, they need to work on that maybe doesn't leave uh, the world a better place, or as you said, do no harm to, to somebody else. But I, I do think that, you know, society at large and humans are generally good. And I do think that, you know, when push comes to shove, those things do prevail. And hopefully we can look back at, at history and we can look at things like the, the rise of, of the Nazi uh, regime and learn from some of those things, you know, when we as a society need to step up, vote people out of office, protest, you know, in the streets, uh, impeach, you know, presidents, what, whatever the, the democratic, reasonable, you know, solution is in this country, you know, we need to leverage those mechanisms early and as often as, as we think that it's going to do the most good for our country in, in the long term. So until those things are taken away from us, not all hope is lost by by any means. Uh, and, you know, I, I do think that that we will find our way out of this. And, you know, hopefully your your kids lives will will be better than than ours, just as you know, I know that our parents hope the same for us and probably in a lot of ways, you know, are. Um, so that being said, is there anything else in this book that that you want to talk about before we get to our ratings? I'm good. I'm I'm good. I'm I'm ready to go. All right. My book, my rating go. first. Knock it out. Uh, so one thing we didn't really talk about was uh and I wanted to was the differences between Devil in the White City and, and this one. And I'll just say briefly that I think the the narrative style of this book, because of the the subject matter and also probably the recency of the history and uh the documentation that was available to Larson, um, I think the narrative of this book was a lot more engaging than devil in the white city. I still think that, 
you know, Larson is just an absolute master of, of research and, and building, um, you know, these, these historically accurate, um, you know, settings and, and communicating the story. So I uh, definitely top shelf for me. Um, and again, I'm, I'm going to read more Larson, but I promise I'm not going to do it on the podcast. <laughs> That's fine. Um, I'm I'm probably a little bit less slightly enthusiastic than you, but I, as I said earlier, I, I do appreciate Larson's touch for writing within this sort of sphere, the narrative nonfiction. And uh, overall, you know, I'm I'm fascinated enough by the subject matter. I think it did a really good job of of delving into that sort of unknown elements of it. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm also gonna put it on top shelf. So. Excellent. All right, so we've had we've had a run of um, let's get out of this, yeah. yeah. So next next book, man, we've we've had three straight heavy hitter, heavy analysis, heavy reflection on society's whole. Man, let's just read a book, right? Let's just yeah. let's just get a fiction book out of here. Let's read it. Let's enjoy it. Let's dissect what the story is, and let's call it a day. So that's what I'm going for. We're going to get an author, you know, relatively she's 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 been popping off. Uh, of yeah. course, Jill, I'm talking about Jillian Flynn. So our next book is going to be her first book that she wrote, uh, Sharp Objects, which Ooh. actually I believe got turned into like an HBO miniseries a couple of years ago. So that'll be interesting to read. And I think go watch that much like uh, what was it? Our Stephen King book that we did. Be interesting uh, to see the two mediums yeah. for that. Yeah, for but, sure. But uh, yeah, and so, so Sharp wrote, Objects, she, she wrote, wrote Gone, Gone Girl, Girl? Okay. which is, I think, her most acclaimed piece up until, you know, got turned into a movie and yeah. all that. But this was the this was the first, I think, her first foray into uh, into fiction, and it's 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 really highly regarded. I think the, the premise being that you have uh, an investigator kind of returning home to her hometown where a series of murders have taken place. You know, it's kind of a much akin to, I don't know if you saw the movie Gone Girl, but I feel no. like... Jillian Flynn's wheelhouse is kind of this like crime mystery murder sort of genre. And I'm here for it. Honestly, I'm okay. I'm, I'm ready to get into just, you know, a book where we can just read it and enjoy the story. So, yeah. So, uh, we've been noodling around, uh, you know, what to do in, in kind of a weird month of August. And we'll, we'll touch on kind of why probably in the, in, well, absolutely. Probably in the next episode. Absolutely. Probably. Absolutely. Probably. That was, that was the most non-committal I could possibly be. Um, yeah, well, I'll, I'll explain. Absolutely. My gut tells me maybe. So in our August episode, we are planning to do only one at this point. Uh, we are going to talk about our like top five, bottom five books that were turned into movies and or I guess TV shows. So we're just going to go and do some research, watch some movies and come back and just do a podcast with a basically list for each of us. Top five, bottom five of our best and worst book to movie adaptations. Yeah. So that'll be fun. So this, so sharp objects will still be out. I believe what the first week of August. Yeah. Our second episode will, will, We'll explain a little bit more in detail why in the next episode, why we're having to do that. But I'm looking forward to it. Honestly, I, you know, if you had approached me or if I hadn't approached you about a book podcast, maybe in some alternate universe, we would have made a movie podcast. Because if there's one thing I love <laughs> now, as much as reading, it's it's watching movies, man. I love my movies. So any excuse to go out and pile through, you know, 20, 30, 40 different uh, book adaptation movies just to 
completely rate them on no bearing whatsoever other than just how I liked them. I, I'm super looking forward to that, honestly. So That's awesome. I, I'm going to try to stay in the realm of books that I've actually read so that I can, you know, have something of like substance to go through, but um, I am not a movie person. So this is actually oh, going to be wow. harder in, in some sense, except for like the time commitment sense uh, to go through and, and do this. I've never been more disappointed in you as a, as a human being than I am right in this moment. Not a movie yeah. person. I honestly can't even think of the last movie that I watched. I know exactly uh, the last movie that I watched because I watched it this morning. What was it? Cars 2. Uh, see, we live different lives. That would never... Uh... Sarah likes light movies, and Michael likes cars. So I was like, yeah, let's watch the car. So we watched the first one. It was good. I hadn't seen that in a while, and I never saw the second one. So Okay. Listen, car- I'm going to just throw it out there. Quick Cars 2 review, okay? I'll yeah. give the first one, like, a 6 out of 10. It's an okay. It's all right. It's, you know, it's, it is it is what it is. Pixar's fine. Cars 2, 7.5. I like the Ooh. espionage angle. I'm a big Mater guy, so, you know, we'll see how the third one treats me. All right, so next episode on August 3rd will be Jillian Flynn's Sharp Objects. Uh, Our episode after that is going to be our movie episode at some indetermined time before the end of August. Thank you for listening to this episode, and until next time. Bye.